Do you believe in aliens? According to recent research, a surprising number of people believe in aliens. I was really shocked about this. Maybe you weren't. You won't be. But it was on the eve of the release of the latest Star Wars movie that some people have seen. A research group called Glocalities, they published the results of a huge study, a comprehensive study. They asked 26,000 people across 24 different countries about their belief in aliens. And they found that overall, 47%, nearly half of the people asked, believed in intelligent alien civilizations somewhere else in the universe. And in an even greater number, 61% believed in some sort of life forms other places in the universe, on other planets. For me, that was an astonishing result. Especially because over the last 50 years or so, huge amounts of money and effort have been ploughed into the search for extraterrestrials without a shred of evidence backing up this belief. I think maybe it shows that more people are influenced by science fiction movies than they are about science fact. But there is another way in which believing in the existence of aliens is actually crucially important for us. This morning we're going to start our study in Peter's first letter. And a key idea in Peter's first letter is that for those of us who are followers of Jesus, we are called aliens and strangers in this world. If we belong to Jesus, then we really don't belong in this world. This world is not our home. Throughout this letter, Peter will teach us the implications of all of this. But this morning we're just going to look at the beginning of this letter. And we're going to see where Peter introduces this truth about why we are God's holy people and why we're living as aliens in this world. That we are saints and strangers. So we're going to read just two verses from from First Peter. It's one of the letters near the end of the Bible, if you're, if you're looking for it. Uh, and it's 1 Peter, chapter 1, and verse 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Now, in a sense, This is the the conventional way, (coughs) Peter just started this letter in a conventional way for his time, for his culture. He announced himself as the author. He addressed it to those who he was writing to. 
and he, and he sends his greetings. It's a normal, ordinary way that if you were writing a letter in those days, that's how you would write your letter. But packed into these little two little verses are some amazing truths that introduce some of the, the, the themes of this letter. Peter addressed his letter, first of all, to God's elect. This is an amazing statement, especially considering who Peter was and who he was writing to. Because the people that he was writing to were primarily from a Gentile, a non-Jewish background. They weren't Jews, but they were Gentiles. A couple of verses that give us a hint for that are 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18. He taught, says that they were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down by their forefathers. And then chapter 4, verse 3, he says, you've spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do. So in the past, before these people trusted in Jesus, these people were living useless, pointless, immoral lives. That's because they didn't know God. And they didn't know God's standards. They were pagans, which just simply means that they were separate from God's community. The community of God's people. They were separate from the people of Israel. So these were Gentiles. And in the past, Peter, as a passionate and committed Jew, would have had nothing to do with them. He used to believe, as he said in Acts chapter 10, that it's against our law for a Jew to associate with a Gentile or visit him. He thought it was a, he believed it was against the law for him to even go and spend any time with a Gentile, with a non-Jewish person. He believed that Jews alone were God's chosen people. And so anyone who was a, who was not a Jew, they were unclean. They were unacceptable in God's sight. But God had changed Peter's mind. Through a miraculous vision. And then later through witnessing the Gentile Cornelius. Trusting in Jesus and his friends. Trusting in Jesus and receiving the Holy Spirit just like they had at Pentecost. Peter began to understand the wonderful truth of the gospel of Jesus. As he says again in Acts chapter 10, that everyone who believes in him and believes in Jesus receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Everyone who believes in Jesus. Not just for the Jews, not just for good people, not just for God-fearing people, but anyone who trusts in Jesus will instantly and completely receive forgiveness of sins through Jesus' name. And so amazingly, Peter could call these Gentiles, these non-Jewish people, God's elect. He now understood that they were God's chosen people. They were God's chosen people. As he will say later, that they were once, you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. 
And so what does that mean for us today? What it means is that wherever we are from, whatever our background, whatever, whatever we have or haven't done, if we have trusted in Jesus, if we have accepted Jesus as the forgiver of our sins and the leader of our lives, then this is who we are. We are God's elect. As we were rejoicing in last week, we are God's chosen people. But the really interesting part in this, letter, in this, this introduction for me is that Peter does, doesn't just state that this is who we are. He also shows us how the three persons of the Godhead work together to make this an amazing reality. How God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit work together to bring us into this privileged position of being God's chosen people. So first of all, verse 2. Peter was writing, he says, to those who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. We've been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now some people try and explain this, because I know it's a difficult concept for us all to, to get our heads around, but some people try and explain it by saying that God knew beforehand who was going to trust in Jesus, and so God chose those people. God chose them because they were going to choose Jesus. But the problem with that idea is it makes God's choice dependent on our choice. So we could then claim at least some of the credit for having chosen Jesus. We chose Jesus and God chose us. So whose choice was the, the, kind of the foundation of that? Well, it was our choice. But that's not what the Bible des describes. God's foreknowledge instead means that in eternity past, before the creation of this world, God set his love on us. God chose to love us. And because of his love and because of his compassion, God chose us to be his people. God chose us. And we can see this even working out in Peter's life. At the start of his letter, Peter introduced himself as Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. This is a, is a really important uh, position or role that Peter had in the early church. He was an apostle, which declared his authority as the personally chosen and appointed representative of Jesus. He was among those chosen to be the foundation of the early church. And of course there's no apostles today, because one of the, one of the requirements of that was to be an eyewitness of the resurrection of Jesus. So Peter, he was an apostle of Jesus Christ. He had that great privilege, that great honour of being a chosen and appointed representative of Jesus. But when Peter was writing that, he wasn't boasting. He wasn't saying, oh, look at me guys, I'm an apostle, I'm somebody. 
Because he knew that his identity and his role as an apostle was not something that he had chosen or that he had earned. Listen to how Matthew records how, how Peter became a follower of Jesus. It's in Matthew chapter 4 verse 18. It says this. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. Now, if we had read on, we'd recognize that Peter responded to that call. Immediately, he and his brother left their fishing nets and their dad, and they followed Jesus. But the question is really, who chose who? Well, clearly, it was Jesus who chose Peter. It was Jesus who said to Peter, come, follow me. Not the other way around. And later in John chapter 15, verse 16, Jesus really spelled this out. He says to his his disciples, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit. Fruit that will last. You did not choose me, I chose you. And then even uh, further behind this choice is the choice of the Father. As later on that evening, Jesus prayed, I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me. For they are yours. Jesus was praying for his disciples as those who had been chosen by the Father and given to him. Now, let's be clear. This is not teaching a kind of fatalistic approach in life. The Bible does not support a fatalism. Everything in our life is not just kind of predetermined. Our choices are not meaningless. Individual human responsibility, individual free will is taught by the Bible. It is a reality. We have the right to make choices in our life and they are real choices. But the Bible does teach that if we have made a decision to trust in Jesus as the forgiver of our sins and the leader of our lives, then the ultimate reason, the ultimate reason of why we are in Christ this morning is not because we've made a choice, but rather before the world began, before time and space ever existed, God knew us. God loved us. And God chose us. It may be difficult for us to comprehend. But really if we let this truth sink deep into our hearts. Then it will fill us with awe. With humility. With gratitude. Also with a sense of security. Because it's God's choice, not ours. And ultimately, of course, of worship. As we worship the God who chose us. Not because of who we are, but because of who he is.
So we have become God's elect because we've been chosen by the Father. But secondly, we become God's elect through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Now, what does that word sanctifying mean? Well, simply it means to make holy. Sanctifying is just making holy. So making holy is to be setting up, set apart from the world and set apart to belong to God. It's taking somebody from belonging into the world and saying they are now belong to God. And it's grounded on the holiness of God. Sanctification is all based on the fact that God is holy. So later on, Peter will, will quote the words of, of, of the Lord saying, Be holy because I am holy. Because God is holy, then his people should be holy. And there are three aspects of sanctification. Three aspects in the Christian life of becoming holy. First of all, there's that initial separation from our sin. The moment that we put our trust in Jesus, God declares us to be holy. Secondly, there's that process of becoming holy that occurs as we grow in our holiness through our lives. As we become more and more like Jesus. And that process is a lifelong process. And it can feel like it takes a long time. And sometimes we look back and we think, well, really, is it happening at all? But God is committed to that process. And then finally, there's the ultimate sanctification, the ultimate time when God will declare us completely holy for eternity. When we will see Jesus as he is. And we will be like him. So those three dimensions of sanctification, three dimensions of becoming holy, and each of them are the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. But it's the first one that Peter is referring to here, I think, where God, by His Spirit, transforms sinners into saints, into God's holy people. And He comes to live within us the moment that we trust in Jesus. And on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was given to the church, it was Peter who stood up and offered this gift to all who were listening to him that day. He says this in Acts chapter 2 and verse 38. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. He offered that gift to everyone. And this amazing offer is still made to everyone who will call in the name of the Lord. Whatever we've done, whatever we haven't done, whatever mess we've made in our lives, whatever bad choices we've made, whatever mistakes we've made, whatever kind of junk we've, we've allowed into our lives, whatever, anything we've experienced, we can stand holy in God's presence because of the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. Isn't that an amazing miracle that God does in our lives? But of course, this is only possible because of the finished work of Jesus 
on the cross. We've been chosen and we've been sanctified, verse 2 again, for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood. This phrase takes us back to the Mount Sinai. After Moses had brought the people of Israel out of Egypt, remember the, the Exodus with all of the plagues and going through the Red Sea and all of that, they came to the, to the, the foot of the Mount Sinai. And they built an altar with 12 pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And a sacrifice was offered. And half of the blood from that sacrifice was sprinkled on the altar. And then Moses read the words from the book of the covenant. The agreement between God and his people. The law. The the demands of the law. And the people all vowed their complete obedience. Everything the Lord says we will do, they said. Unfortunately, they didn't live up to it, but that's what they said. And then Moses took the other half of the blood from that sacrifice and he sprinkled it on the people. And he said, Exodus chapter 24, it says, This is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all of these words. This is the blood of the covenant. In this way, in this, with, through this ritual, these people were becoming God's people. As they entered into this covenant relationship with him, this agreement, this contract between them and God, that God would be their God and they would be God's people. But we've entered into something much, much better. Because through obedience to Jesus, that simply means through putting our trust in Jesus, through responding in faith to the offer of the gospel, we have, as it were, been sprinkled, not by the blood of an animal sacrifice like in in Moses' day. We've been sprinkled by the blood of Jesus. And so we have come into a new covenant relationship with God. The New Covenant, the New Testament, what we've been celebrating this morning in our time of communion together. Remember Jesus said, this is the blood, when he talked about the cup, this is the blood of the New Covenant that was shed for you. And so now we are God's holy people. Because the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. The blood of Jesus does something in our lives that the blood of animals could never have done. Now Peter didn't always understand this. This understanding of the cross and the meaning of it and the purpose of it, Peter didn't get his head around this immediately. In fact, when he first heard Jesus explain the cross to him, do you remember how he responded? Remember how he responded when Jesus said that he was going to be arrested and he was going to be tried and he was going to be put to death? Peter was outraged. He said, never Lord, this shall never happen to you. Peter believed in Jesus as the Messiah, the son of the living God, as he had just told them. But his idea of the Messiah was as this was like this victorious sovereign 
who was going to ride into Jerusalem, defeat his enemies, establish God's kingdom on earth. That's what Peter was imagining. He didn't want a Messiah who was going to be the suffering servant, who was going to die for the sins of others. The idea of Jesus dying on a cross was not part of Peter's plan. But Jesus knew that it was his father's plan. So Jesus actually rebuked Peter that day. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. And actually, Peter continued to struggle with the cross, even after that point. In the Garden of Gethsemane, you remember how he tried to prevent it? How when Jesus was arrested, Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. I don't think he was going for his ear, but that's what he got. And then when he followed Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest, where Jesus was was arrested and put on trial, I don't think he was prepared for that. He wasn't prepared to see his Lord arrested and attacked and abused. So much so that three times, when he felt like his whole world was falling apart, three times Peter said, I don't know the man. Three times he denied even knowing Jesus. So when Jesus was crucified, Peter was nowhere to be seen. Peter wasn't standing at the cross being faithful to his Lord. His whole faith had crumbled because he'd failed to accept the cross as part of God's plan. But Peter's eyes were open to the truth. And then on the day of Pentecost, when he stood up and preached to that crowd, this is what he said. He said, this man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Peter had come to realise that the cross was not a tragic disaster. But rather it was God's set purpose and plan. A plan that was absolutely necessary for our salvation. And as we'll see later in this, in this letter, Peter wrote, For Christ died for sins, once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. So this is how Gentile sinners, non-Jews, like the ones that Peter was writing to, or Gentile sinners like you and I, how we can become God's holy people. It's because we've been chosen by the Father. And we've been purchased by the Son. And we've been sanctified by the Spirit. But Peter's readers were not just the elect. They were also the exiled. See what he says in verse 1? How he was writing to those who were exiled, 
who were scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia. These names refer to the Roman provinces around northwestern Asia Minor. Today, they're part of modern Turkey. So if you look at the map, that's where, where the people that were, who got this letter first of all. But Peter was more than just describing the, where the people lived, where he was writing to. Actually, Peter was, from Ro- it was in Rome at this time and he was writing to them. So it's not just talking about geography here. Because he actually used a technical term when he said scattered. The word is actually the diaspora. And I think some of you have probably heard that word before. The diaspora. Because this word was the word that was commonly used to describe the, the Jews who had been scattered throughout the world. They'd left their homeland, in the, 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 the land of Israel, and they'd been scattered around. They'd been dispersed around the world. They were the diaspora. But Peter used it here for these mainly Gentile Christians. Why? They weren't Jews who had been scattered from their land, the land of Israel. But they were God's people who were exiles from their homeland. Not from the land of Israel, but from heaven. They were exiles from heaven. That's because, as Paul wrote, our citizenship is in heaven. As Christians, we are foreigners, aliens, living in this world. We are citizens of heaven, living on earth. And so, as Christians, we are, as Paul says in verse 1, strangers in this world. We're like refugees. Scattered in this world. And that's not by accident. This is actually God's plan. This is God's design. Jesus prayed for his disciples uh, in John chapter 17. And he said this, As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. God wants us to be out there in this world. Influencing this world. Being salt and light. But what it means is we're not home yet. We don't really belong here. And this has huge implications for our lives, for how we should live, for how we will experience life, for some of the challenges and difficulties that we will face in our lives. And Peter will draw out a lot of those implications in this letter. And we'll see that as we go down through. But let me just mention two of them just now. Just so you can get started in thinking about this. First of all, this means that we should stick out in this world. If we are God's people, if we are God's people living in this world as strangers, then we should live differently from everybody else who's around us. Who don't belong to God. We should think differently. We should speak differently. We should act differently, love differently, work differently, do family life differently. We should have different standards, different morals, different priorities, different goals in life. 
This is what Peter will teach later on, verse 15 of chapter 1. Just as he who called you is holy, so be holy, be set apart, be different in all that you do. If we are God's holy people, then we should live holy lives that are set apart from this world. But secondly, sticking out like this in the world inevitably brings suffering into our lives. It's a major theme in this letter, as we're going to see. At least 15 times Peter references suffering in this letter. It's just a short letter, but 15 times he talks about it. And he wrote, don't be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering. Don't be shocked if you find life in this, in this world difficult. Don't be shocked if people are attacking you or abusing you because you're a follower of Jesus. Because if God's people are exiles in this world, if they are strangers in a foreign land, if they're living by different standards and following a different God, then they're going to be attacked by those who are still living as part of this world. Conflict is inevitable. For Peter, when he was writing this, that conflict, that persecution was becoming more and more violent under the Emperor Nero. I always think of Tony's dog when I think of Nero, but wasn't so, so vicious as, or more vicious than Tony's dog is. Uh, Nero was a horrible guy. And he attacked the church horribly. And it was just getting started around the time that Peter was writing this letter. In fact, Peter was killed by Nero just a couple of years after writing this letter. For us, the persecution may come in different ways. Maybe more verbally, emotionally, subtly. It may come in the form of ridicule or exclusion or loneliness. But Peter, he's writing this letter so we can be prepared for it. So we can get ready for the challenge of living for God in this world. So we can endure it. But even more than that, so we can overcome it. So we we can be victorious even in the struggle. Even in the time of suffering. And so this letter, written to God's elect, living as exiles in this world, is not a depressing read. It's just packed full of encouragement for us. And in fact, Peter ended his greeting with this kind of summary of this letter. An encouraging summary. These wonderful words. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Other people might look down on us. Other people might ridicule us. Other people might exclude us or even attack us. But if we've trusted in Jesus, then we are God's people. And so we can rejoice and look forward to more and more of the loving, compassionate, generous, undeserved gifts of God. Because as Peter says later on, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. 
And although we'll experience some incredibly difficult times in our lives, we can rest in the peace of Christ. Because Jesus promised, in this world you will have trouble. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Yes, there's pain and there's suffering now. But because of Jesus, there's meaning and there's purpose and there's power through those tough times. And there's the sure and certain hope of glory. Glory that's to come. So as believers, we are both saints and strangers. We are the elect, but we're living as exiles in this world. We belong to God, so we don't belong to this world. So I pray that each one of us would grasp hold of this reality, this new identity, so that we can live out this new life.